Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together that we may come and see how you work in each one of our lives. You call us together as a family, but we know that you work to each person, to, that each one of us, you've created us as individuals. But there are certain lessons that we all need to learn, So, and we need to make part of our lives. So Lord, we thank you for this time together, and may, we, may our hearts be open and our ears that we may hear the message today and have it become part of our lives. Amen. Yeah, it's been something. It's been two months since I've been here. Yeah. I had to do Google to find out where the church was located. <laughs> <laughs> and did you bring the rain? I did. Oh, thank you. And, and a little bit of humidity, because we had enough of it in Wisconsin. Um, it was so fun to get up this morning and go to find the devotional for today, and my copy of this at home, this was right where it was supposed to be. Crucified with Christ. Be imitators of God as dear children. Ephesians 5.1. The story is told of a man who glanced at an obituary column in his local paper. To his surprise, his own name indicating that he had just died. At first he laughed about it, but then the phone began to ring. Stunned friends and acquaintances called to inquire, can you imagine how shocked they were when he answered the phone, to offer their sympathy. Finally, in irritation, he called the uh, newspaper editor and angrily reported that even though he had been reported dead in the obituary column, he was very much alive. The editor was apologetic and embarrassed. Then a flash of inspiration, he said, don't worry, sir, I'll make it right tomorrow. I'll put your name in the birth column. <laughs> this may sound like merely a humorous incident, but it's also a spiritual parable. Not until we have allowed our old selves to be nailed to the cross and to die can ourselves be born again and emerge to grow into the likeness of Christ. The Bible is marvelous and true. And he said, he made you alive. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. The hope for today, as children of God, we can both obey his commands and copy his behavior, knowing that we have been raised to imitate our Heavenly Father.
Testament scripture today comes from Psalms 119, verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I've promised it once and I've promised it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you promise. Lord, Accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are the heart's delight. I am determined to keep your decrees to the very end. We say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Testament reading today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law could be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to peace and life. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that all those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to, the, that, to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Take your bullets and we have a responsive reading. Sing aloud, beloved, rejoice for the ministers of Christ's church, for the people who gather and pray, who care for the needs of others. We pray for God's mercy to come forth. Sing aloud, beloved, rejoice for the broken and those suffering, for the chaff in our own lives. May it burn so that new life comes. We pray for God's grace and love. Sing aloud, beloved, rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know all belongs to you, and we know that you, anything that we have has been entrusted to us by you. We can't always understand why you have entrusted things to us, but we do recognize that it is from your, by your grace that, that it has been. So, Lord, as we give our offerings today and, and at any time, let us always remember that as we live, we are, we are lights to your, to your, for your Son. Let, let those lights shine out and let others come to want to, be, to have that light within them. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm always happy to preach in a 
church where you can wear blue jeans. I preached to the Lutherans for several years, and uh, they insisted I wear at least slacks. They would much prefer that I would have worn priestly garb. <clears throat> but I always told them, Jesus preached in blue jeans. And they said, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> Levi Strauss wasn't born yet. But Jesus did preach in the blue jeans of his day. You say, really? Why was that? Well, let me recount to you the story of Jesus uh, encountering the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He introduces himself to her by asking for a cup of water. And immediately she says, how is it you, a Jew, are speaking to me, a Samaritan? How did she know he was a Jew? She was Semite too. He wore a tallit, a prayer shawl, square on the front, square on the back, a tassel on each corner. She knew he was a Jew. And by the way, it had uh, blue thread in the very bottom of it. I'm not sure it was denim, but it was a blue thread. I'd like to talk to you this morning about Moses. If you've read Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, in chapter 3, he speaks of the seven realities of knowing God. And reality number one is this. God is always at work around you, in you, around you. It's like the Psalms where God says he goes before us, he is behind us, he is at our side. God is always at work around you. The story of Moses, Blackaby goes on to state, is not about Moses. Think about that a moment. The story of Moses is not about Moses. It's about Moses' world. It's about the world that God wanted to change using Moses. Moses would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And that miracle would change the world. The story of Moses is not about Moses. It's about God's plan to redeem his world through not just Moses, but Israel. To quote Blackaby, God was already at work in Moses' life when he encountered Moses at the burning bush. God had a purpose he was steadily working out in Moses' world. Even when Moses was in exile in the desert, he was right on God's schedule. In the fullness of God's timing, in the middle of God's will for that moment. There's an old saying that no matter where you go, there you are. Very true with our Lord and Savior. No matter where you go, there you are. You are in his hand. He is directing your world, directing your path. And his intent 
is not to just glorify himself in your life, but in the lives of everyone around you. He has a global plan for your life. So it's not about you. It's about your world. All too often, we miss the big picture. Oh Lord, help us see this world the way you see it. Help us see with the clarity and purpose that you see it. Make it so. Make it so, Father. The baptism of Moses. Perhaps you've heard of this. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And most people, when they read this passage, and as they should, the context is very much about water baptism. But there's a greater context. And I want to share that with you this morning. I'm going to read it to you from the message. The message translation, okay, truly it's a paraphrase, but truly it is a translation that is excellent context. From Genesis to Revelation, E.H. Peterson, I know of no one who's done a better job of keeping the context of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation than E.H. Peterson. Let me read it to you. Remember our history, friends. Now this is St. Paul speaking to Jewish Christians. Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours. As Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. There's another context beyond baptismal waters here. And it is this. You are Moses. You're called to be a Moses in your world. You have a sphere of influence as did Moses. And like it or not, People are looking at your life. And by God's glory shining through your life, they're following your life, your example. Sphere of influence. Have you heard of the prayer of Jabez? First Chronicles. First Chronicles 4, 9 through 10. Jabez prays this Marvelous prayer. His mother named him pain. Jabez in Hebrew means pain. She gave birth to him in pain, so she calls him pain. That's almost like Johnny Cash's song, a girl named, or a boy named Sue. I mean, <laughs> what a moniker. Pain. But his prayer is beautiful. Oh, Lord, that I may not cause pain, that I may not cause evil. Bless me, enlarge my territory. 
What's he really saying? He's not asking for wealth. He's not asking for more herds of cattle on the hills. He's asking, Lord, enlarge my circle of influence. My sphere of influence, enlarge it, Lord, so I may glorify your name. Enlarge my sphere of influence. Picking back up in verse 3, they all ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, God's fountain for them that stayed with them wherever they were, and that rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert, and God was not pleased. We read in the New Testament, in Acts, God was so unpleased that that entire generation died in the wilderness. Only two of two million. Two million made the exodus from Egypt. Only two saw the promised land. And of those two, not even Moses made it to the promised land. Awe and wonder. The awe and wonder of God is worthless if you don't allow God to change your heart. I'd like to uh, quote you something from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, the man who, along with George Whitfield, was responsible for the first great awakening in these uh, Americas. He said this, I believe that no one has ever changed, either by doctrine, by hearing the word, or by the preaching and teaching of the word, unless their affections are moved by these things. No one ever seeks salvation, ever cries for wisdom, ever wrestles with God. No one ever kneels in prayer or flees from sin with a heart that remains unaffected. In a word, there is never any great achievement by these things of religion without a heart deeply affected by those things. The reason is this. People are not affected by what they hear. I would go on that they're not affected by what they see. There are many who hear about the power, the holiness, and the wisdom of God, about Christ and the great things that he has done for them, his gracious invitation to them, yet they remain exactly as they are, unaffected. Who was Jonathan Edwards? Well, he was more than a preacher. He was quite the evangelist. Many say, many historians say that the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield was actually the energy that propelled the American Revolution. 
He preached about freedom, and that freedom went deep down into their souls, and they wanted not just freedom of religion. They wanted freedom to worship as they pleased, live as they pleased, work as they pleased, organize their new land as they pleased. It led to revolution. Jonathan Edwards and Moses had this in common. Passion. Great passion. Jonathan Edwards said this, God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory. And that these two are one passion. A passion for God is the pursuit of holiness. What is holiness? Think on that a moment. What is holiness? Let me give you a good definition. Holiness is wanting God and nothing else. Each Peterson said of Jeremiah, if you've read of Jeremiah, E.H. Peterson said, if you cut Jeremiah, he bled holiness. He wanted nothing but God and God's will for his life. Holiness is hungering for God. Matthew 5, 6 from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. What is righteousness? Right standing with God. You don't get right standing with God without having a hunger for his presence in your life. John Wesley. I love this quote. I'm sure you're familiar with the last sentence, but have you heard the, the precedent here? Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin, and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergy or laity. Alone, such alone, will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. God does nothing but in answer to prayer. I love your little prayer list in your bulletin. That, that tells me this is a praying church. God is pleased. Very, very pleased with that. God uses greatly those who are greatly focused on him. I want to relate to you just how focused was Jonathan Edwards. I want to read you an excerpt from his diary. This is circa 1737 some 40 years before the Declaration of Independence. We're still just British colonials. We don't have a country yet. He said, Once I rode out into the woods for my health, as my manner has commonly been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer that stirred my affections. My purpose was to seek God's glory, and when that glory was revealed, I found myself face down on the ground 
wishing to become dust and at the same time wanting to remain there forever. I was given a view of the extraordinarily majestic glory of the Son of God, meek and gentle above the heavens, the condensation of Christ in excellency. I, it swallowed up all thought and conception. I was in tears, empty and annihilated for about an hour. I just wanted to lie in the dust and be full of Christ alone, to live in Him in heavenly purity, perfectly sanctified. What's he talking about here? He's talking about Shekinah glory. He's talking about the intense presence of God. The Shekinah glory that rested on the Ark of the Covenant it's a Hebrew word, and it means the settling. The Ark of the Covenant was the seat of God's authority here on this earth. And it was powerful. If you've experienced even a portion of Shekinah glory in your life, you assume one position, perhaps two. Typically, you're flat on your face. Because the intense presence of God eviscerates sin. You're humbled whether you want to be humbled or not. You're on your face. You're in tears. And you want to remain there forever. Because it is beyond beautiful. Shekinah glory. It's like the presence of God achieving critical mass in your life. There's a, a sad story associated with Shekinah glory. In the second chapter of Samuel, David has called for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem. For 60 years, the people have basically ignored the Ark of the Covenant. It's been in a shed out back of a gentleman's house. And David has secured Jerusalem. He has secured his kingship over Israel and Judah. What do we do now? Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant to God's city. And Uzzah and his brother are part of this train, if you will. But they made a critical mistake. They have ignored God's law. In God's law, you have poles. You slip those through the rings on the Ark of the Covenant. It is only to be carried by the Levites. So they've messed up. They've put it on an oxen cart. And the oxen stumble and the Ark teeters. And Uzzah's going to help God out. So he steadies the ark and drops instantly dead. God's presence eviscerates sin. And Uzzah was instantly dead. Shekinah glory, nothing to trifle with.
I have experienced Shekinah glory a couple of times in my life. And each time it changed my life. The first time I was 16 years of, old, uh, of age at a Christian summer camp. And this was, uh, as I recall, the summer after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Most of you are old enough to remember that. You remember our major cities on fire. You remember perhaps even more turmoil then than we have now. But God was very merciful. <clears throat> We're at a large Christian summer camp. I would imagine there was at least 2,000 people in attendance. We were in the open air tabernacle. It had just a roof and the, uh, the pilasters that supported the roof. And I would estimate in that particular service there was about 300 people, most of us uh, youngsters, most of us teenagers. But the power of God was moving in a mighty, mighty way. And I would say at least 100 of us went up to the front of the tabernacle to kneel and pray. And uh, I don't remember exactly. There was... I would say at least 50 people. Now, I'm old-time Pentecostal, so you, you might not be familiar with this terminology, but they were slain in the Spirit. You say, what's slain in the Spirit? It's what Jonathan Edwards was talking about. When the intense presence of Christ is upon you, over you go. You're on your face. Or you're on your back with your hands toward heaven. There's only two positions you can possibly assume. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I remind you, I told you I'm old-time Pentecostal. I know a lot of people say, well, if you receive Christ, you've been baptized in the Spirit. Well, okay. My baptism overflowed. And I was given a prayer language, a language I did not know. And I prayed in that language for, I would guess, an hour. And I was so weak after that experience that people had to help me up to my feet so I could get to the mess hall to get lunch. The presence of God eviscerates sin in your life. But it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The second time I... happened uh, to receive a phone call from a gentleman that I had worked with in years past. And at the time, I was in retail construction. And he called me up trying to drum up some work. He was a carpet salesman. And uh, it culminated in, in a, uh, a golf outing. And while we were golfing, he relayed to me the story of his son who had died of a drug overdose in, in recent weeks. And uh, I shared with him, he was a Christian, I encouraged him. But when I got home from that, uh, that golf outing, God put uh, such a burden on my heart to pray for this gentleman. And I'll say this, if you want to experience Shekinah, get busy in intercessory prayer. God loves intercessory prayer. You want to experience Shekinah, do some serious intercessory prayer. 
And while I was praying for him, it, it just seemed that uh, the very presence of God was in the den. I'm on my face again. I'm in tears. And I'm praying in a language I never learned, and I knew exactly what I was praying for. I was praying for this gentleman's solace. God loves intercessory prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to continue talking about Shekinah. Because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can now boldly and confidently enter God's presence. Again, St. Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians. Now this is backing them up. We can boldly enter God's presence. They've been raised in a culture that one person goes into God's presence only once a year. It's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Only one person is allowed into God's presence, and that is the high priest of Israel. We may now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. When I think of all this, verse 14, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything, in heaven and on earth. We're talking about the holy of holies here. You and I may now, since that veil has been parted, you and I may now enter that holy of holies through the sacrifice of Christ. But you and I, had we been there on crucifixion Friday, you and I, had we left Golgotha and went to the temple and seen the veil torn in two, you and I most likely would not have entered that Holy of Holies even though it was exposed. We've got this shame problem. We have this unbelief problem. Has Jesus really made me that received in God's presence? Yes, he has we may now come boldly and confidently into Christ's presence. Most of us stay outside the veil. We can see the Holy of Holies. We can see the settling of God's presence there. And we say, no, I'm not worthy. I know what God's word says, but no, I'm not worthy. I can't do that. What is Shekinah? John Calvin called it Coram Deo. It's Latin. Coram Deo. In the presence of God. You can go through the veil. You can kneel at the very presence of Almighty God. The Puritans during the Great Awakening called revival the manifest presence of God, manifest presence, tangible 
How do we get there? How do we get there? Jeremiah 29, 13. When you seek me with all your heart, all your heart, you will find me. We go to God's holy mountain. Moses went to the mountain of God. Where is our mountain of God? It's our communion with him. Moses said, show me your glory. I think God chuckled. You can't handle it. No, it'll kill you. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by the mouth of the cave and I'll pass by so fast you won't see me. Actually, the Hebrew literally translated means that Moses saw where God was a millisecond ago. He saw the flash. He didn't see God. He saw the flash. And that flash was so brilliant. Remember when he came down from Mount Mountain? Oh, Lord have mercy, Moses. Put a sack over your head. Can't stand to look at you, bro. It's too much. Where God was a millisecond ago. The disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration, what was their formula? They saw Shekinah. They saw, I would say not the full glory of God, but... <laughs> I'm sure they were glowing for a while. What did Peter say? Oh, Lord, what do we do? Uh, let's build a few tabernacles. <clears throat> he was uh, discombobulated, to say the least. But have you considered only three were at the Mount of Transfiguration? Only three disciples. Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Only the inner circle. Only those who could do no other than be intimate with Christ. John the Beloved, always leaning on Jesus' shoulder. Had to have that physical touch. Had to be as close to Jesus as he could possibly get. This is called communion, folks. Communion with the Almighty. James 4 draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ephesians 3.16, and I'm reading this from the NLT. There are three levels of spiritual formation. St. Paul again, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Other translations, I pray that he will strengthen your inner being. Have you driven by a bad auto crash? And perhaps you've seen, forgive my frankness, but perhaps you've seen a little blood or you've seen gauze that's soaked through blood and you cringe. It's a visceral experience. Gut-wrenching. Your compassion wells up. That's called your inner being. 
This is what St. Paul's talking about. I pray that from his unlimited resources, Christ will empower you in your inner being through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. This is called the essential presence of Christ. Christ dwelling in your being. And I pray that your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is his love. This is called the cultivated presence of Christ. It takes some initiative. It takes some work. It takes some seeking. I pray that your roots grow down deep into God's love and thereby he will give you the power to understand how wide, long, high, and deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is the manifest presence of Christ. This is when your light shines. The manifest presence of God in your life. His glory shining forth to everyone you bump into. The manifest presence of Christ. You're smiling because you know what I'm talking about, don't you? God bless you. Ephesians 3.16 from the ESV. What is inner strength? I just told you. It's your compassion. It's your affection. Your emotions boiling up to the top. Your joy illuminating all those around you. The joy of the Lord. That's a witness. You don't have to say a word. The smile on your face, the joy in your heart is your testimony. The joy of the Lord is your testimony. But we've got to get it out of our heads, folks. One of my favorite pastors is Matt Chandler. He has a, a rather huge megachurch in Dallas called the Village Church. And he has said this. He says, sadly... The American church today, we know all about God. We have all this technology. I've got at least five Bibles in here. Who knows? Endless commentaries. Gigabytes. We know all about God. But it's really a matter of getting it down from our head into our hearts where it affects our emotions. It's our emotions that win people to Christ, our passion. Jonathan Edwards again. All truth is given by revelation, either general or special, and it must be received by reason. Up here. It's received by reason. 
Reason is the God-given means for discovering the truth that God discloses, whether in his world or in his word. While God wants to reach the heart with truth, he does not bypass the mind. You have to reason. But belief is when we get it down here. Revelation is what happens in your head. Conversion is what happens in your heart. Romans 10, verse 10, ESV. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, we confess and are saved. You only confess what you truly believe. The mind is reason, the heart is passion. C.S. Lewis, there is an inconsolable longing in our hearts for we know not what. It is that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier. The sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the smell of a bonfire. The morning cobwebs in late summer are the noise of falling waves. An inconsolable longing for what? A passionate relationship with our Creator God. God is not after our habits. He's after a relationship. He wants a relationship with us, not our doing. When we have a relationship with God, Works, good works are the byproduct. You don't have to worry about good works. When you're in love with the Savior, walking hand in hand with Him, good works, it's like exhaling. We inhale God, exhale good works. Obedience is God's love language. Think on that a moment. Obedience is God's love language. I want to close this morning with this thought. In Hebrew, this is called the Shema. Shema in Hebrew means hear. It's from the scripture in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God, he is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. The word Shema in Hebrew means either hear, listen, and obey. In ancient Hebrew, there was no separate word for obey. When God spoke, it was understood that he was speaking covenant and that covenant must be obeyed. There was no option. When God speaks, we obey. Separate sides of the same coin. God speaks, we obey. No separate word for obey. God speaks, we do. 
Oh, Lord, make it so. You speak, and we do. Pray with me, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, by your great grace, by your magnificent grace, you have engaged us. You have solicited us to participate in what you're doing in your world. Help us, Father, understand it's not about us. It's about your plan to save the world. I love that song that says, uh, I believe it's my casting crowns. Lord, you'll, you'll save this world if we'll just get out of your But please, Lord, keep engaging us. Keep romancing us with your great grace so that we will seek you more fully, so that we will learn how to live in your presence. Like that French monk, Brother Andrew, will learn how to live a life of prayer. Every waking moment will be dialogue with you. I love what E.H. Peterson said, Lord, prayer is answering speech. It's not give me this, give me that. Prayer is answering speech. We're answering to what you're speaking to our hearts and we're saying, yes, Lord. Yes, amen, I'll do that. Tell me where to go, what to say, what to do. Yes, Lord, I will do that. Rend our hearts, Father. Give us Shekinah glory. Let us live in your magnificent presence. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my God.
us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, let us take these words today. Let us take and have them come into our heart, be part of our being, and then let us express them out to those around us. Let them see that light in us, the light that only you, you can provide, the light of knowing that we are part of your family and that what we are doing is what your son has taught us. This we ask in, your, in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace.